We've been in this series Renew because at this time of year, uh, it's a natural time for us to get into some better habits, some better routines. We, we want to try all the new things. Often we try way too much, too many new things, and we have to take it back a step and, and uh, reevaluate if we're actually able to go to the gym 20 times in one week. You know, we have to evaluate, are we able to exist on just carrots and celery for the next three months? And we have to evaluate whether or not we've overcommitted ourselves. Well, in this series, the goal really isn't to add a whole lot of newness to your life, but really to help you renew some things that I think are important for you as a follower of Jesus. And in your life, we, we talked about renewing yourself uh, through the prayer of David in the first week. And last week, we talked about renewing your mind, uh, which really, that's a, a subject that's very personal and near and dear to me. And so if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and check that message out on our app. But today, I want to do something a little bit different. Rather than preaching today, I want to shift to some teaching. And the difference between preaching and teaching is how loud the preacher is. I'm going to be a little quieter today. I've got a goal for you this year. And my goal for you is for you to become a more fully formed follower of Jesus. Uh, and a key to that is knowing where you should begin. Maybe you followed Jesus for a long time, and if that's you, that's great. Uh, today should be a good reminder of why you believe what you believe, or it should confirm why you believe what you believe. But maybe today you're here and you're exploring the idea of faith. And if that's you, then I hope that today helps you understand why we believe the way that we do. Today, the message is titled, Renew Your Understanding. And that's what I want to do for us this morning, is to help us renew our understanding of God by the way of understanding, uh, by renewing our understanding of doctrine and scripture. Doctrine and scripture. In Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. It's important to know why we can trust what it is that we believe. Doctrine means what we believe and why we believe it. And as a church and as the pastor, it's very important to me that we build good, sound doctrine. I know that that might sound boring to you, but to me, this is the things I get excited about, how we're forming our doctrine. And so today, I'm just going to teach you how I built my doctrine and how you can build yours. I built my doctrine based on two primary things. First and foremost is the Bible. I believe any doctrine uh, that is worth its salt should be defended completely on the basis of Scripture. And the only exception I would allow to that, uh, the only area of doctrine I would allow myself to look elsewhere, or outside the Bible, uh, to defend doctrine, is the doctrine of the Bible. What we believe about the Bible. It's counterintuitive to use something to defend itself. And so I would look at outside sources to confirm the accuracy of the Bible and then use Scripture to defend the authority of the Bible. The second thing that I want to look at to affirm doctrine is the tested and well-written accounts of tradition throughout history. So the first would be Scripture, and the second would be tested and well-written accounts of tradition throughout history. Tradition does not create doctrine but it can support it. 
The idea here is that over time, there have been 2,000 or more years of scholars and theologians researching different doctrines through history, scholarly writings, and manuscripts of Scripture. The arrogance of the modern man is to assume that he has information no other generation had or that he is smarter than the generations that have come before him. In reality, especially as it relates to doctrine, any question that we have or aspect of doctrine that we want to study has already been studied from hundreds of different angles over thousands of years. So let's take a look today at the Bible and why I believe that it is authoritative, reliable, accurate, and the inerrant Word of God. I believe that the Holy Bible and only the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. It alone is the final authority in determining all doctrinal truth. In its original writing, it is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and I affirm it from beginning to end. I want to show you a couple things that I believe help us build up a doctrine of inerrancy and accuracy in the Bible. This is important because we establish the accuracy of the Bible, then we can establish the authority of the Bible. And once we establish the authority of the Bible, we can use it to defend the rest of our doctrine. I want to share this with you today, because in conversations that I have with people who are forming faith, or uh, who are new to faith, or who have not yet, who are just have questions about it, I hear a lot of things repeated to me that they've heard online, or that they, that they heard on a radio, or a podcast, or believed about the Bible, or didn't know about the Bible, that are simply untrue and can be disproven, not through my opinions or the faith that I have, but even just through facts. And so I want to present some of that to you this morning. The Bible is 66 books. It's written by 40 authors or 40 different writers over the course of 1,500 years. It's an ancient book. The Bible's not something from the 1970s era of moralism. It's not something from the great revival of the 1850s. It's not something from colonization in the 1600s. It is not something that the medieval church put together in the 1500s. It's thousands of years old. And it's existed in its current form for a very long time. The Septuagint is the first translation of the Bible uh, that we're aware of. It's this complete version of the Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek. So it's called the Septuagint, and it's Hebrew into Greek, a Greek version of the Old Testament. And it was done during Alexander the Great's time, before Jesus was born, by a few hundred years by the time that Jesus was born, both Greek and Hebrew Old Testaments were available and both are quoted throughout the New Testament by Jesus, Paul, and other writers. Both were considered accurate. The Old Testament canon, canon meaning what is officially accepted as the Old Testament, has been agreed upon going all the way back to the authors of some of the books of the Old Testament and the scholars of the time that they lived in. The first time we see the 27 books of the New Testament listed out is in 327 A.D., not long after original authorship, but long enough for global circulation. I said that last time too. Circulation. This is not the first time that the 27 books are agreed upon as being the canon of the New Testament. We see references to each book in more ancient documents. However, the oldest complete written list that we have is this list going to 327 AD. Before that, throughout the first century, we can see all 27 books quoted by either biblical writers 
or first century theologians, which verifies that these 27 books were agreed to be the inspired word of God going back to the first century A.D. Sidebar, the the Bible was written by 40 different writers. I believe that the Bible has one author. The author is God. The writers of the Bible were aware they were writing God's words. Their thoughts, their actions, their words aligned with the power of the Holy Spirit to write what we have here. It's this unique partnership that is now over and concluded. But essentially, God used these 40 writers to communicate his message with the world. God wanted us to have the Bible because he wanted us, he wanted to be known by us. I need you to hear me say this as we get into it, that there was a time when I thought the Bible was really just a list of rules and all the ways that I could mess them up. I thought that it was just a a kind of a a controlling uh, work where I had to read it and just try to fit my life into its pages. But as I studied scripture, I've discovered that that is not the case, but rather that this is a book given to us as a gift by a God who does not want to remain distant, but who wants to be known by you. That the very existence of the Holy Bible, the Holy Written Word of God, is a confirmation that you have a Father in heaven who does not want to be distant from you, but who wants to be known by you. The Bible is his hello. The Bible is his way of building intimacy and relationship with you, revealing himself through the pages of Scripture. I have to preach a little bit. Okay, let's talk about archaeology for a moment. Archaeology. Archaeology supports the Bible. There may be some leaders and people and places that we have never found archaeological evidence for that exist in the Bible, but there is nothing that has ever been found that has contradicted the Bible. No archaeological evidence has ever contradicted what exists in the Bible. In fact, we found a lot of archaeological evidence to support what is written in scriptures. A great example uh, happens in John's gospel. There is a story about Jesus uh, healing someone at the pools of Bethesda. For a long time, there was no written history in all the written history of Jerusalem, which there is a lot. There was no written history uh, of the pools of Bethesda. And so a lot of scholars said that they never existed until one day, when they were excavating a site in Jerusalem, and there, 40 feet below the surface, were the pools of Bethesda with five porticos, exactly the way that John described them in his gospel. Now, these pools of Bethesda are archaeological facts. This is a pattern in archaeology through Scripture. It will be something that exists in the Bible that everyone says this can't be real. It's not. It's not. We have no evidence of it. And then a couple decades later, they will discover evidence of it. And all of a sudden, it is fact. The people and the places in the Bible are real and are constantly being confirmed. In Acts, Luke names 32 countries. 54 cities and nine islands, and every single one of them has been confirmed without a single error. And many of them, most of them, show signs of Christianity dating back to the first century, which supports the account of the mission trips listed in Acts. Let's talk about accuracy over time. The Bible today is the same as the original manuscripts. And we have more proof of that than we have of any other ancient document, period. Let me, this is one of the things I'm most excited about. 
Because this strengthens my faith to understand this. I love history. I love to study history, all kinds of history, even Star Wars history. I think sometimes I probably know more about the Star Wars galaxy than our own, but I just get fascinated by it. I love to learn about the Roman Empire and, and what was going on in medieval times. I love it when new discoveries are made about periods of our history where there's, not, where there's kind of a gap in what was recorded. And we, we sometimes come across things that help us understand what was happening in the world. I love it. I love it. I love the Old Testament. I love learning about the people of God and what the world was like in that time. And it's fascinating to me that all the history that I know and accept as fact that the most accurate historical ancient document in the history of humanity is the Bible. Look at this. I'm going to tell you some of this. Uh, in 1947, one of the greatest biblical archaeological discoveries was made, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, had copies of the Septuagint, which I talked about earlier, the translation from Hebrew to Greek of the Old Testament, that were... Um, a thousand years older than any other copies we had before that discovery. What an opportunity for us to see for ourselves how accurately copies have been made over the course of the centuries. And when you compare the manuscripts that we had before 1947 with the Dead Sea Scrolls that were thousand years older than the oldest ones we had, they agreed with one another to an accuracy of 99.5%. Meaning that the manuscripts that we had, although not nearly as old, maintained their accuracy to 99.5%. The entirety of the 0.5% that remained was spelling errors or sentence structure that did not change the meaning of the passages at all. We are able, because there are so many copies, to align them, erase those spelling errors, and come up with a copy that is 100% accurate. In total, there are over 5,300 copies of the manuscripts that make up the Bible. The New Testament alone is humanity's most reliable document out of antiquity. There is no ancient text that even comes close to being as reliable in translation, accuracy, and overall agreement. For example... Plato's Republic is Plato's most famous work. There are entire college majors dedicated to studying Plato. And this work is the basis of what we know about his philosophical beliefs. In all of, academic, in all of academia, Plato's Republic is considered indisputable in both its authorship and its accuracy. The earliest copies that we have of Plato's Republic are copies made 900 years after the original was written. And in total, we have seven copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars, the place where a lot of the Roman history, early Roman history that you've learned and were taught in school as fact, uh, came from this work, Caesar's Gallic Wars, written around 100 B.C., the earliest copies that we have of that were written around 1100 AD, and we have 10 total copies, this many. The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD, and the earliest copies that we have were written between 50 to 125 years later. We have over 5,000 copies. They are better preserved than any other ancient document. The second most reliable is Homer's Iliad, and the earliest copy is 400 years after it was written, and we have 643 copies. There are over 4,000 more copies 
of the New Testament than the next closest ancient document in line. It is the most copied ancient document of all time, which is why we know that what we have is what was originally written when we do a translation. We take all of these thousands of copies and fragments of copies, and they're all aligned to find all the areas that they agree, and then all the syntax errors and spelling errors, and we can look at this, this thousand over here and this thousand over here and put them together in order to find an accurate copy of what was actually and originally written. In ancient texts, oftentimes the authorship's a little murky. We think we know who wrote it, but we base it on style and tradition. The authors of the Gospels and the Epistles in canon are confirmed authorship by either eyewitnesses or firsthand accounts. As an ancient text, the New Testament passes every test far and above anything else that exists. Extra-biblical historians like Josephus and Tacitus, who lived around the time of Paul or just after, and who were either Roman citizens or or Jewish uh, historians, not Christians, wrote about all the same events that take place in the Gospels and in Acts in their historical accounts, and even mention the writings of Paul and John in those historical accounts. Meaning other historians of the day verify things like the very real crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. In both of those writings, they mention Jesus of Nazareth and this, the trouble that he caused in Jerusalem and the stir and the commotion that he caused and that he was crucified and that there were rumors of a resurrection and the body disappeared days later. I'm telling you right now that if you believe that Julius Caesar existed, that we have far more evidence that Jesus Christ existed. Now, whether or not he was real, is, is, it's not a part of the conversation. It's about whether or not he did what he said he did. But we have eyewitness accounts of that as well. We can confirm the Bible's accuracy. We can confirm it better than we can anything else. Any other thing in recorded history. And since we can confirm the Bible's accuracy, let's talk for a second about its authority. Because the Bible does declare its own authority. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, although human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's just a sampling. The Bible declares its authority over and over and over again throughout its writings. And honestly, that's enough for me because I have faith. But if you're building your faith and you need more than that, you only need to study the prophecies that exist in the pages of Scripture. I'll show you a couple of good examples. First, the prophecy of Jeremiah that Israel would be exiled for 70 years. This whole country will become, this is in Jeremiah 25, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt and make it desolate forever. This is important to understand. Jeremiah is writing this 50 years 
before Babylon, the nation, the empire that we know exists because you learned about it in history growing up. Babylon conquered Jerusalem. That's fact. Everybody knows this. Babylon conquered Jerusalem on what's called their, was their Eastern campaign where they took over a whole bunch of this area of the world. Babylon conquered most of the world in this time. They had not begun that campaign yet. In fact, it was mostly building up the kingdom of Babylon while Jeremiah was writing this. Jeremiah is predicting that they're going to get conquered by Babylon before Babylon has started any conquering. Jeremiah is predicting that they're going to be exiled for 70 years, which is the exact amount of time they would be exiled. This is incredible prophecy. Uh, it's amazing, but let's look at some that are more directly related to us that we can see here in 538 BC. So hundreds of years before Jesus, Daniel wrote the following prediction. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. In this prophecy, Daniel is claiming there's going to be 69 weeks of years between the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the appearance of the Messiah. Now keep in mind that this prediction, this bold and specific prediction, is 538 years before Jesus is born. Now let's investigate this with a little history. In 464 BC, Artaxerxes, the Persian king from the movie 300 with the ring that connected his ear to his nose, he ascended to the throne in 464. His 20th year as king is 444 BC. Nehemiah, the Jewish cupbearer to the king, king was deeply concerned with the reports about the ruined condition of Jerusalem. This is, this is well into the exile, okay? This is at the 70-year moment uh, where Nehemiah, and you can read it in his book, the book of Nehemiah, about him going back to Jerusalem. He petitions the king in Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. And so it pleased the king to send me. Scripture then provides us with the exact date of this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. According to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. The Jewish calendar month was Nisan, and since no day was given, it's reasonable to assume that it would be understood as the first, which is the Jewish New Year's Day. And in the Julian calendar that we presently use, the corresponding date would be March 5th, 444 BC. This was the day on which the decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, remember this date, March 5th, 444 BC, and take a look at the appearance of the Messiah. If you recall in the Gospels, Jesus, on numerous occasions, forbade his followers from telling others whenever they declared he was the Messiah. Many times we see it, that somebody would say, you're the Messiah, and he would say, tell no one what you've seen here today. Don't tell what you're declaring right now. It's not yet my time for you to declare, to de declare it to others. Uh, we see that in John chapter 2, verse 4, and John chapter 7, verse 6. And on March 30th, 33 AD, we know this from the festival calendar that was recorded. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and he rebuked the, the Pharisees' protest against him and encouraged the whole multitude of his disciples as they shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And Jesus said, if these become silent, the stones will crown. In Luke chapter 19. And this was the day that Jesus was publicly declared the Messiah. So let's compare the date of the decree, March 5th. 444 BC to the date of Jesus' declaration, March 30th, 33 AD. Now, before we begin, we have to clarify the fact that the Jewish prophetic year composed itself of 12 30-day months. Stick with me. In other words, the ancient evidence indicates the Jewish prophetic year had 360 days, not 365 days. Daniel states 69 weeks of seven years each. Each year has 360 days. The equation is this, 69 times seven times 360. You do it in your head real quick. You come up to 173,880 days. In just simple mathematical demonstration, the number of days in the period from March 5th, 444 BC to March 30th, 33 AD, the day Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, can be determined at this point. The time span from 4444 BC to 33 AD is 476 years. I remember 1 BC to 1 AD is only one year. And if we multiply 40, 476 years times 365 decimal 2421879 days, corrected for leap years, just keep doing it in your head, we get the result of 173,855 days. Now add back the difference between March 5th and March 30th, 25, and our total is 173,880 days, the precise amount of days that Daniel predicted 500 years before Jesus would be born. It's incredible. In fact, in human history, there is no other prophecy that is as specific and as provable. It, it, is, it is a prophecy that came true to the day. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet, here it is. To me, things like that bring authority to the word of God. There's some that hit a little bit closer to home. Because the craziest eyewitness prophecy of all time came true. Mark chapter 8, 31, and there's a version of this in every gospel. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And now the book of Mark can be proven in authorship to 50 AD or thereabouts, 17 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's ancient and it's written from eyewitness accounts. And Mark writes, and many eyewitnesses who were still living at the time confirmed that Jesus told his followers over and over that he would be arrested by the chief priests, killed, and after three days, rise again. He predicted it. He said it out loud more than once. Eyewitnesses affirmed that he kept saying it. And then he did it. And eyewitness accounts, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, Luke, John, they all confirm that he did what he said he was going to do. And so, Jesus fulfills 48 messianic prophecies and an additional 250 prophecies throughout Scripture, just through the course of his life. If the craziest things that this book predicts do in fact come true, then to me, it gives weight to every other thing that this book says. It's logical re reasoning. If 
this claim is true, the wildest claim that Jesus made. If he could tell people, hey, I'm going to be, he even, he even spoke of crucifixion. And if he could say, I'm going to be killed by the religious leaders. And I'm a rabbi, but if I, I'm going to be killed by the religious leaders. And three days later, I'm going to resurrect again. So don't stress out about it too much. If that's true, if that came true, then it brings authority to every other word in the pages of Scripture. The prophecies of Scripture declare the authority of Scripture. So if the Bible has accuracy and it has authority, then that is why my doctrine says that it is the inerrant, absolute, authoritative Word of God. And that is why I believe every single word that appears in its pages. And so here's three things that I want you to know before we finish up today. Number one is this. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have questions. I, I, I'm passionate about this stuff because I can remember many times where I had questions studying these things in seminary or in the years after, because there is a problem where doctrine uh, collides with humanity. There's some hard things in the Bible, and maybe you believe it, and it's easy to believe it until your faith has to bump into it, until your life experiences bump into it, or until that thing that you believed that was easy all of a sudden has a name and a face, and it's a person. Those things always make me ask questions. Why do I believe what I believe? Why, why? Well, it's a good, you're asking me why. I should, I'm also asking why. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to go search and build your doctrine and search the scriptures and seek to understand them. Jesus asked you to follow him with everything that you are, to give him everything, to be willing to give him your life and to sacrifice your life for him. It's not a small ask. And God knows that. And he knows the call to faith isn't easy. And it's okay for you to have questions along the way. We all know John 3.16, which is is different than Austin 3.16. John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, I skipped a part, but you get the idea. uh, So John 3.16 is a well-known passage. But do you know the context of that statement? Nicodemus was this well-respected Pharisee. He was high-ranking. He would have taught other Pharisees. He was making decisions on behalf of the Pharisees. He was this important religious leader who devoted his life to studying the Word of God. And he met with Jesus because he had a lot of questions. You can see it in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus is like, Jesus, I got questions. Everything I say to you, you repeat back something equally or more confusing to me. 
I am just trying to understand what you are about and who you are, but this, this doesn't track for me. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? asked Nicodemus. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you don't understand. Do you not understand these things? Jesus gives a really confusing answer to Nicodemus. And it's a beautiful answer. No, we know now we can look back and it makes sense and we can understand it and we can see it. But this man, charged with being an answerer of questions, a teacher, a ruler over the Pharisees and their council, still had a lot of questions when it came to the things of God. And Jesus said, how is it that even you don't grasp all of these things? Jesus patiently answered these questions and used the moment to make statements he knew all of humanity would need to hear. But what is important to see is that after all these questions, Nicodemus isn't just forgotten. He's not ushered away to never appear in the story again. He doesn't become one of the guys that shouts crucify him before Jesus. Rather, he appears again in John chapter 19. Joseph of Arimathea, another Pharisee, and Nicodemus are the two men that remove Jesus from the cross and perform the burial rites on him and place him in the tomb. Nicodemus is at the crucifixion of Jesus when even the disciples had scattered. It's okay to have questions. Just don't leave them open. When you have questions, find someone that you can trust a mentor, a pastor, a leader, somebody that you can bring your questions to and go before God in prayer and bring them your questions and have conversations about it and learn and let your faith be strengthened by these conversations. Bring these questions to the right places and the right people and learn. But it's okay to have questions. Second thing is this. Study God's word on your own. Study God's word on your own. I believe that God's word is absolutely beautiful. That it's the best thing you could add to your life. That a good understanding of it, that the study of it, that researching it, that pouring yourself into it will absolutely transform you from the inside out. But don't take my word for it. Study it on your own. Go read God's word. See what it says. For a long time, I grew up in church. I was in church Sunday morning and Sunday night. Who's ready to bring back that Sunday night service? I ain't doing two sermons on one day. I'll tell you that right now. But I grew up going to church. And the reality is, I, I, I knew some things about the Bible, but I'd never really read the Bible. I just had it read to me for years. I didn't understand it. Because what I believed about the Bible was just very simply that it was this book of rules or that it was this out of date, out of touch, ancient document that didn't really have a lot to do with me or my life. 
or that the Bible was kind of like a magnifying glass looking at all the things that I'd done wrong and, and how I was never going to get it right. That's what I thought was true until I was 21 years old and in the darkest place I had ever been in my entire life. Desperate for hope. Desperate for light. Desperate for meaning. Somebody said I should look there. And so I did. I went and got a Gideon Bible out of the locker and I began to read it. I read it cover to cover in just a couple months. And I was blown away that this book that I was sure was just going to be all about the ways God was mad at humanity. It was something different. Because when I opened it and studied it on my own, what I realized was that it was a picture of a, of a loving father who lost his children in Genesis. Well, you could see the heartbreak in the moment. And then... He enters back into relationship with them later in that same book, but it doesn't go very well because God brings love and he brings redemption and he brings a way for relationship, but people bring rebellion. And I didn't have to, as I'm reading it, wonder why they did that. I was frustrating. You, you read all the Old Testament, you're like, just come on, guys. It's so much better for you when you follow in your father's way. When you do what he's asked you to do, you've got peace and you've got abundance and blessing. And when you don't, you've got all kinds of mess and bad stuff. I didn't have to wonder why they didn't though, because I was just as rebellious. And I, and I read this book and I see that over and over again, God brings justice to their rebellion. And then he brings love and compassion and grace and redemption. It's just the story you read. It, it goes over and over again. And there's so many beautiful moments where you can see the heart of this father, the heart of this maker, and then you get to the book of Matthew. You go through the prophets and you kind of get hyped for everything that's going to change. And you get to the book of Matthew and everything changes. Because in this book, you realize how far he was willing to go. I remember, I just, I read Matthew in one day and I wept most of the way through it. I didn't feel worthy of it. I remember reading about the teachings of Jesus and I remember thinking, that's who, I, I want to I be like that. I want to look like that. I want to live like that. That's the church I want to go to. I want to be around people that live like that. And then you get to the sacrifice and the moment that God said, there will never be anything ever again that would get in between me and my creation. I will remove every obstacle. And the rest of the book is just explaining all the ways that he's done that and all the ways we can live on the other side of it. You've got to study God's word on your own. I believe if you do, you will fall in love with it as I have fallen in love with it. It is not always easy, but I have given my life to it because at 21, I opened this book and I read it and I found something worth giving my life to. There's this great passage in Acts chapter 17. Acts is the story of the early church spreading after Jesus was resurrected. And in 
Acts 17, we see Paul and another missionary named Silas, and they're at a place called Berea, and in Berea, they do what they always do. They always would go into a new town, and they would go to the Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel of Jesus first to the Jews, because they had a basis of understanding for the Messiah, and then they would take it to the Greeks and to the Romans and to everybody else all around. They were just bringing this message of Jesus, and so they go first in Berea to the synagogue, and it says... uh, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, and as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They heard Paul, and they were like, Paul, this message about Jesus is incredible. Wow. Let me just go check on what you're saying real quick first. Let me go read the scriptures and study to make sure. And the scriptures revealed the truth. And they gave their lives to Jesus. Here's what I'm telling you. You need to read God's word on your own because I'm gonna say stuff up here sometimes, maybe it's wild, and you're like, I don't know about that. Go study God's word on your own. Go read it. Test the scriptures. Find if they are true. We live in a time where there's a lot of confusion around what is and what is not the truth. And to that end, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be launching a new series the week after our seven-year birthday uh, titled Live No Lies, based on a book by John Mark Comer of the same name. I encourage you to go get the book and read it to prepare for this series. Because right now, the season that we're living in, truth is so confused, and there's a lot of people deconstructing their faith and questioning what does and what does not belong in it. I think deconstructing your faith is not a bad thing. I've done it more than once. The problem is in what you do next. Many of my generation are deconstructing their faith and then they're just leaving it deconstructed. A mess. Susceptible to influence from anybody that sounds convincing. If you deconstruct your faith, make sure that you reconstruct it using the best tool you've been given. The holy written word of God. Build it up based on what you see in God's word. And then you will know what is real, absolute truth. Last thing is this. Number three is important. Facts and proof are no replacement for faith. It's great to know this stuff. So important. It's it's important to understand why we trust the Bible, why we stick to it, why we will hold firm to the words of the pages of Scripture, no matter what changes around us or outside of us. This is good to know that stuff. But you you also need to know that it's 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 just it's not knowledge that's gonna bring you into salvation. That's just not how it works. Maybe you you've been kind of wondering and you've had doubt and Maybe some of those doubts are getting smoothed over the more that you learn about the facts that make up our faith. It's great. That's great. But there will come a moment where you are going to have to make a decision that can only be made on a basis of faith. All of this is crucial in forming a good doctrinal foundation. We've got to know why we believe what we believe, especially the more that the world we live in stands in opposition to what we believe. But this understanding can strengthen your faith, make you feel more confident in who God is and what he's done for you. But faith is believing in something that just can't be proven, that doesn't have to be proven. 
And at the end of the day, your faith saves you. Paul says to the Ephesians, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by our nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by research so that no one can boast. Not by proof so that no one can boast. But it is through faith. For we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What we believe, it doesn't hang on evidence, facts, or proof. It hangs on the faith that we have in Jesus and in what he's done for us. If you're in here today and you're ready to enter into a relationship with him, it begins in a journey of faith. And there'll be a lot of building of your doctrine and studying and learning to come. But it begins from a place of faith. And if you're ready to make that decision of faith today, every head bowed, every eye closed, it's a simple conversation. It goes like this. Pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own. I need you, God. I believe in you. I want to know you more. And so all that I am, I give to you. Everything from this day on, I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen.